welcome back to the Humans of Nature podcast, where we delve into the untold stories of our planet's delicate ecosystem. We're your hosts, Vasindra and Ritambra, and we're thrilled to embark on this journey with you. Today, we have a special guest joining us, Dr. Daniel Rubenstein. And Dr. Rubenstein is a distinguished scientist and researcher renowned in his expertise in zebras and in their ecological significance. With a deep passion for behavioral ecology, uh, he has dedicated his career to unraveling the mysteries of zebra behavior, social dynamics, and their impact on the ecosystems. His extensive fieldwork and innovative research have provided invaluable insights into these iconic African animals. We're thrilled to have him here with us today to share his profound knowledge and expertise. Now, Dr. Rubinson, we've given a brief introduction about your work, but is there anything else that we might have missed out that you want to add? No, that was terrific. Um, so I got interested in studying zebras because I actually started studying horses. Now, horses, zebras, and wild asses are really closely related. They're all in the same genus, which is a way to group organisms that have the same body plan and basically the same physiology, and they respond very similarly to the environment. But one of the things that's really fascinating about horses in general that got me interested is they live in societies in which the members that form the groups are not genetic relatives. So the whole theory of why animals live in groups and why animals associate with each other is usually related to um, altruism, cooperation. And one of the ways in which that can evolve is because relatives are nice to each other. And the reason that's important is that if there's a cost associated with being nice and being altruistic and helping somebody, if that individual is a relative, you share some genes in common so that if something goes wrong, there's always a benefit associated with that individual leaving offspring who you're going to be related to. So your altruism is really discounted in some senses the risk associated with the altruism is discounted by the kinship of those who you're helping. And what's interesting about the equids is that the groups that form, the adults are not relatives. So I was drawn to try to understand why would strangers live together and cooperate? And so I started studying wild horses on a barrier island off the east coast of the United States called Shackleford Banks. And those horses got there in 1565 from a shipwreck from Cuba on the way to Williamsburg in, in the Virginia uh, colony. And the ship, as most ships do on the east coast of the United States, where there are barrier islands, crashed. And it tore a hole in the, in the, in the, in the boat, so they had to um, fix it. And they let some of the horses off, and the horses escaped and ran, and have lived on that island ever since. So I started studying why they lived in groups, and they had a very special type of group, very different from most other horses, and I figured out the general rules, but there's no predators on that island. So I said, well, I wonder if the rules that I have discovered with respect to why horses live in groups would apply to zebras where there are predators. Are the rules going to be different where there's a risk of predation? 
And so off I went to Africa and I started studying the horses in pajamas, the striped variety. And where I work, there's two species of zebras. There's the plain zebras, the common zebra, the ones with the big fat wide stripes that touch under the belly. And then there's the larger grevy zebra, which have very thin stripes and a white belly and they often have rounded ears. And their societies are very different. And so that's what intrigued me. And yet both face predation. So that's how I got involved with studying zebras. Oh, that's amazing. Um, thank you so much for sharing what sparked your interest in studying these animals. So now we're gonna move on to the first question. So your research focuses extensively on zebra behavior and ecology. What initially sparked your interest in studying zebras and what unique insights have you gained about their social dynamics and ecosystem roles? Well, as I said, there's two species of zebras. One is the plain zebras, which essentially behaves like a horse in the sense that a group of females bond to one male and they stay with that male for many, many years. So while the male may mate with many females, he's polygynous, the females are monoandrous. They're loyal to that particular male. Whereas in the grevy zebras, the females change their associations on a regular basis and they leave the male with their, they often leave the male they're with. So it's a very fluid society, and we call it a fission-fusion society, whereas the other society we call a closed membership society. And so they're fundamentally different in the sense that how they respond to the landscape leads them to either have strong bonds, like in the horses and the plains zebra, or weak bonds, like in the grevy zebra. And you might ask then, why are there the differences between these two societies? And the answer comes because females are very choosy. They choose to be with a particular male. If the male is good to them, then they stay with that male. And what is it that the male provides? He provides vigilance. He's looking around all the time. Now he's looking around to keep other males away from his females, but he also, while he's scanning the environment, he's also finding predators. And so while the male is vigilant, the females don't have to look up. The females can keep their head down and graze. So if the male is a good male, highly vigilant, very effective at reducing risk, then the females can increase their foraging. They increase their foraging, then their offspring are going to have more nutrition when they lactate, and as a consequence, their babies are going to survive. So they're very choosy about which male they join. They choose males that are dominant, that can keep other males away, and they choose males that are willing to forego feeding themselves to provide protection for the females. Now, the question then becomes, why, if this is such a good society for the plain zebras, why do the grevy zebras show a different variation on this common theme? And the answer is, is that plain zebras have to drink every day, which means even though females are in different states, some are lactating with babies and some are not, they all have to drink every day. So they all stay with the same male. In grevy zebras, females that aren't with young foals don't have to drink but every three to five days. And so they can range far from water to look for food in the arid areas where they live. They live in drier areas. And so they're adapted to not have to drink. But females with young foals have to drink every day. So they have to stay with the males who set up territories around watering points, and the other females don't. They can go and come and go and come. So that tears the social fabric amongst females, and that leads to the fission-fusion society. So that's how ecology shapes the sociology of horses. 
So the fundamental nature of the social system, the relationships among females depends on their physiology and their reproductive state. And the males have to respond to that. So in a very real sense, females are in the driver's seat driving the social behavior that then males optimize. Thank you for expanding on the differences between these two types of zebras, like their mating techniques and their um, social systems. And now with these intricate observations that you made, could you share some memorable experiences or challenges you faced conducting research in the wild? Yes. Um, to follow a zebra on a landscape where they walk and you have to drive over bumpy ground in a car, in a vehicle, um, you can imagine all the challenges. First of all, it can be very wet, so your car can get stuck in the mud. It can be very bumpy, and the axles of your car can break. They can go across a hilltop, and as you drive it, all of a sudden the hilltop crashes in because you're driving over a former warthog burrow or a hena burrow, and your car sinks down. All of these require you to know how to fix a car when it's broken, how to get out of the mud, how to get out of a hole, and you have to be very resourceful. Now, when I first started studying, there were no cell phones, no cell phone towers, no radios, and you were alone on the landscape. And when you broke down, your ingenuity had to figure out how to get out of the problem that you were in. So it was always very difficult. Second, you often had to find safe food, safe water on a landscape. It was before the days of UHT milk. So your milk always went off and became sort of like cottage cheese. Your food always tended to rot. So you had to be careful about that. And so you spent a good part of every day simply taking care of the logistics to let you do your research. So every day was a challenge. You didn't know what was going to go wrong. And so um, those were the challenges. You also were working on other people's land. So you needed permission to work there. Sometimes the owners said yes. Sometimes the owners said no. You also had to work in national parks where you weren't allowed out of your vehicle. So you had to stay in your vehicle, even if you wanted to go out and measure the quality of the vegetation. So you were constrained both by governmental regulations, by land ownership, and just by the harshness of the environment. Yet it was always fun. It was always challenging. Um, and you learned a lot. Yeah, even with all these like challenges, you still found so many intricate observations that so many scientists use now in research. So yeah. we're gonna move yeah. on to the question. So you've given like numerous talks and presentations on zebra conservation. What are some of the major conservation challenges that zebras face today? And what are the most effective strategies for ensuring the long-term survival? Well, that's a challenging question that deals with the challenges that zebras face. The one thing you have to understand, zebras are living on a landscape with people. They didn't evolve that way. Um, and when people did roam on the landscape with them, there were very few people and the wildlife was very numerous. But as populations grew, largely because people moved from hunter-gathering into agriculture, they started to change the landscape. Now today, Plain zebras are still thriving. There's still about 750,000 in, in Africa, but the populations are being fragmented. And so that could pose a problem because the genetic flow is going to be limited and that could lead to inbreeding as they lose some of the genes just by random events, especially if the populations are small. And so that adaptive potential could be lost. 
but at least demographically, numerically, there's 750,000. So as long as they can mix and match, and you don't need too much mixing, usually one individual from a different population per generation, that will cause the genetic diversity to remain high. So numbers are good. Genetic diversity is probably still pretty good. And so the plain zebra is really not at risk. The Grevy zebra, on the other hand, is at risk. Our latest census estimates show that there's about 2,800 left in Kenya and about 150 in Ethiopia. That's not very many animals. And the question then becomes, why did the Grevy zebra numbers go down? So when I started studying them back in the 1970s, there were about 15,000 in Kenya, but they were hunted for their skins. Their skins are beautiful with the thin stripes, and they made rugs that would sell to tourists and, and the like. And so they were hunted, and as a consequence, the numbers dropped. And the numbers dropped to around 2,000 to 2,500 and have stayed there until very, very recently. And the question is, why did they never come back? Because they were put on the endangered species CITES um, list which meant you couldn't trade in any animal parts of a species that was on CITES. They were also on the IUCN's endangered red species list as endangered. So the world's awareness of their plight increased, but the numbers never rebounded once the hunting ceased. And part of the reason for that is that they share a landscape with people whose numbers have been growing rapidly. As human health improved and the pastoralist landscape, and the pastoralist is someone who herds cows, sheep, goats, and now camels, and they live on a landscape that's very harsh. While the Grevy zebra can convert the vegetation into food for themselves, we as humans can't. The plants are just too tough, they have chemicals, but we can have animals, livestock, that can convert the plants into products that we as humans can use, especially milk. And so pastoralists use the same landscape that the zebras use. And as their numbers increased, the pressure and competition increased as well. And so that's probably why the Grevy zebras never came back. And since water is the key resource for all zebras, even if the Grevies have to uh, normally drink only every three to five days, the moms with the young babies, the recruits that are gonna replace the parents when they die, if they don't get enough water, their babies are going to die. And if the cows and the sheep and the goats drink all day as numbers go up, then the zebras don't have an opportunity to share the water with the people in their livestock. And as a consequence, they have to drink at night and then the lions can focus on them and eat the babies. And so that's what limited their ability to come back. And so what we've done is we created a scout program where we hire local pastoralists to go about on the landscape on foot, men on the grazing areas with their herds, women who collect firewood and water in the woodlands, and we give them a GPS and we give them a data sheet and they can score the location of the animals, the age and sex of the animals, the type of habitat, if they're with other livestock, if they're with other species, and all of that data we analyze and we share with the communities. And because they're being paid, and because they now become the caretakers, knowledgeably care, good take, caretakers of this iconic species, they now share their water, which means the zebras can drink all day and they're not so prone to predation, and things have turned around. So the numbers from 2000 are now up to about 2800, and I suspect when we do our next census, the population will reach over 3000.
it's nice to hear that these populations are getting bigger and bigger as we put in more effort to like help these animals. And um, I have a question. If you have, have you noticed any traits, um, specific traits related to human interference being like passed down in the time you've done research or will it take many more generations for the zebras to see any changes? So it's interesting that you asked that. So when we first went into the communities and shared our results, because once we had the scouts, we had the data in the community lands where the pastoralists were and where they were denying access of water to the, to the zebras. So we met with the elders, we met with the community, we shared the results. And one of the elders stood up and said, well, I guess we could go home a half hour early before sunset to give the zebras more time to drink. Well, drinking at 5.30 or 7 o'clock is not really different. But what we found is a year later, they started sharing the water with the zebras during the daytime. They themselves initiated the change because they started to appreciate the findings of our results because we'd meet with the communities every year. We brought the scouts all together across the, the many different communities and shared the findings of the data they gathered. And they started to realize that in fact, the zebras were not competitors with their livestock because we've done experiments where the zebras, because of a different fermentation and gut system can live on very low quality food. So they can eat the stems and the straw that cows can't eat. So they changed the architecture and the quality of the vegetation. And by taking away the poor food, they open up the good food for the cattle. So the cattle thrive in the presence of the zebras. And it also turns out that the cattle, by the way they eat, they take away the questing larvae that end up as worms in the guts of the zebras. And so there's a mutualism rather than a competitive relationship between the species. And once we shared that data with the communities, they became more tolerant of the species and started sharing the water during the daytime. And we think that's what's turned around the, the population dynamics of the species. Instead of the babies being eaten by lions and therefore preventing recruits to boost the population, we're seeing that 30 to 35% of the population is now youngsters and the population is growing. Thank you for that insight. And I'm sure it takes like many different like approaches and observation methods to see these like intricate experiences that you see like when you're out researching and looking at the animals so your research has emphasized the importance of multidisciplinary approach to studying wildlife so could you elaborate on how collaboration between different scientific disciplines has enhanced our understanding of zebras and their interactions with the environment exactly so i'm an ecologist a behavioral ecologist and i study how the environment shapes the behavior of a population. And as we've seen, the same environment can shape it differently based on the internal structure and the physiology of an organism. But if I'm going to study those species, I can't be everywhere. So the first thing we did is we created the scout program where we hired people to observe where we couldn't be. And we gave them a GPS, a handheld GPS. So that way we had exact location. So their technology starts to change our ability to gather data. But again, we were only working in eight communities, which is a lot. That's probably four or 5,000 square kilometers, but the Grevy's range is over 25,000 square kilometers. So how are we gonna study them on this different range of habitats? And that's where technology comes into play. I work with computer scientists 
and we've worked on Stripe algorithms to identify every zebra as an individual, because no two are exactly the same. It's as if they have a unique barcode, like a fingerprint. And so we follow the fates of every individual, not just a few with the GPS collar, or not just a few that our scouts follow, but we can follow hundreds, if not thousands of them. And we can also then collect their dung so we can get their DNA, so we can look at who's siring what offspring. And so we can also then measure the movement of individuals and the gene flow between populations to see how well they're doing genetically as well as demographically. So we have to use technology of DNA. We have to use computer science in order to come up with the algorithm so we can identify the, the organisms. And now we're using drones to go find the organisms so we don't have to drive around slowly on the landscape. By flying drones, we can find them more quickly, and we again work with engineers so that the drones can seek out and talk to each other and send back information to us. So technology through engineering, working with natural science is a natural blend. But the other thing is we have to understand people. We have to understand what motivates people. What are their needs? Why would they get involved? How would they profit by working with a species? And so that's where social science comes in. So we need social science, engineering science, and natural science in order to be able to really take knowledge, new scientific knowledge, and apply it for conservation. I saw that you used artificial intelligence to detect like the stripes on the zebras to see which species it was. I found that like a really effective way to see like what species you're working with when you're out on land and studying. And um, as a behavioral ecologist specifically, you really do have to match your techniques to the specific species that you're studying to get the results you want because not every animal would have the same approach that you really need to study them. That's exactly right. It's exactly right because I'm lucky I work with species that are naturally barcoded. But then there's giraffes, they are spotted or striped, and there's hyenas that also have spots and leopards and, and cheetahs. So there are many distinctively marked species, but we've also developed algorithms that look at edge curvature. So that comes from looking at marine mammals and the, and, and the flukes of their tails, but you can use that for the ears of elephants. So even if elephants are not distinctively marked, the shape of their ears give them away as individuals. So by using different algorithms, we are able to bring more and more species into the fold to be able to study individuals who make the decisions and use the landscape. I, I just wanted to add, thank you for that. I just wanted to add, um, do you know the book by Franz DeWall? It's, um, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? I do, yes. I recently just started reading it a few days ago, and what you're talking about actually showed up in the first few chapters, so it's nice to see how things connect. Uh, yep. And yeah, I mean, we're, we learn from our animals, right? I'm always surprised at how, how sensitive and aware they are of their environment, and that shows us new ways to think about how they solve their own problems. You know, it's one of my um, approaches is that animals have a natural toolkit and we constrain them by changing the landscape so that they can't necessarily solve the problem. They don't invent new things, but they have a diversity of ways of responding. So if we understand where the Achilles heel is, where we've caused the problem, if we take that pressure off, then we let them naturally use what they do, they can solve their problems. 
but we have to become aware of what they can do and we have to become aware of where we're challenging their ability to do so and then we have to back off yeah thank you for that it was a great answer so zebras are known for their unique black and white striped coat patterns right what are some of the prevailing theories or hypotheses about the adaptive significance of these stripes? And what insights have your studies provided in unraveling this fascinating evolutionary mystery? Well, that's a great question. We still don't know the full answer about why zebras are striped. We have this three major hypotheses. The first one is that for some reason, sort of like the barber pole that you see in, in the old fashioned salons and barber shops, the stripes move. And so one of the things about looking at stripes is they seem to confuse biting flies. If you have a striped animal like a zebra in a mixed herd with an unstriped animal like a hartebeest or a wildebeest, which is common in the Serengeti, the flies don't land on the zebra, they land on the solid colored beige animal. Now, there's many different hypotheses about the mechanism, about the vision of the biting flies, but the stripes, definitely deter the landing of biting flies that can transmit disease. And many have done that by putting coats on horses or painting animals to be black and white striped. We did some experiments in a plexiglass box where we hung striped skins versus solid skins of impala. And then we released the flies in the center of the box and let them choose where they wanted to land. And in general, we started with 20 flies in the box. About 16 would land on the solid colored hides and only about four on the striped hides. And it didn't matter whether they were thin stripes or fat stripes. So that hypothesis is true, that the animals definitely if they're striped will avoid being bitten by biting flies, um, not completely, but at a much lower rate. The second hypothesis has to do with dazzle confusion. And during World War I, um, the British painted their ships, their merchant marine ships in stripes to make it hard for the German U-boat pilots to decide where the center of gravity of the ship was before they launched the torpedo. And that gave the Royal Navy extra time to put depth charges down to blow the submarine up. And so that's where the idea of dazzle confusion comes from to confuse predators because they will get confused about where they should attack and that gives the zebras extra time to escape. Now that has never been proven. We're doing experiments on that at a safari park in, in Florida where we're towing different cones that are striped or gray of the same luminosity and we're training the lions to hunt on them and we're going to see if the striped cones survive better than the gray cones, but we don't know yet. The third hypothesis is temperature regulation that there's something about stripes that let animals deal with heat loads very, very differently. And so we've done experiments with bottles, filling water, um, 20 liter bottles that we coat with white cloth or black cloth or black and white striped cloth. And we've been able to show that in fact, the black and white striped cloth cool as fast as the white or even faster at times. Now the white is reflecting the heat back. That's why they cool faster than the black. But the black and white stripes do as well, if not better, suggesting some sort of active convection. We've been able to show that works in bottles. And then I've been painting donkeys with black and white stripes and comparing those that are beige and those that are striped. And we're trying to find out whether their internal body temperature 
differs based on putting thermometers on them to measure their internal body. And so the jury is still out. We're analyzing that data. And certainly from the bottle experiments, it hints at that stripes allow you to cool better. And we're going to find out whether the real animals that are striped cool better than their beige counterparts when they're in a mixed herd. So the jury is still out. Yeah. So the, the dazzle confusion and the temperate regulation is a really like these are like really interesting hypotheses, like using the bottle and covering it with like white and black stripes. I feel like it's a really interesting way to see if the theory can be supported with evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fun doing it. I mean, it's fun doing experiments. Yeah. Apart from zebras, are there any other animal species um, that particularly particularly intrigue you or that you would like to explore further in your research? Well, I'm fascinated by all sorts of species. I mean, I, you know, if I was young again and started over, I would look at hartebeest. I mean, oryx, oryx, they range all the way across Africa like zebras do. And again, their societies change as the habitat changes. So that's another species I'd be interested in. I work on wild asses in Israel, where we work with the government who are trying to move the wild asses from an area where they get in trouble with the um, firing ranges and the new wineries don't like them because they eat the grape leaves. So they're going to move water points to move the animals. And we said, wait, let's do an experiment. Let's identify the animals. Let's move the water points. And then let's see how which males go to become territorial. And we've already shown that the genetics are increasing, that if you move and make more water points, more males start to breed. And that increases the genetic diversity uh, of the of the of the of the population, so we do experiments with the government. So it's always an interesting question that appears, and then we try to design an experiment to get at the rules that guide the decision making and what the consequences of those decisions are for the long term success of the species. Yeah, I hope you get to explore other animals as well because you have been studying zebras for quite a while now. So in the future, are there any like exciting research avenues or projects that you would plan to pursue in the field of zebra ecology, behavior, or conservation? Are there any emerging technologies that you believe hold great promise for your advancing our knowledge in this area? Yep. Well, so I have a graduate student who's working on heliconius butterflies. And one of the things about these heliconius butterflies is they mimic each other. And so there's two types of mimicry. One is what's called Batesian mimicry, where one is brightly colored and is toxic, and the other is brightly colored and not toxic. So where you live, that could be the monarch butterfly and the viceroy butterfly. They look very similar. And the, the hypothesis is that they're confusing birds to not eat them because if they eat them, they throw up, they get sick. Now, the viceroy doesn't put any energy into toxicity, so it can invest more into eggs. So it's a parasite in a way on the brightly colored one that is toxic. And as it gets more common, it unlearns the bird that orange is bad because most of the orange ones are good tasting. So it has this fluctuating number, relative abundance of the two species. But we also work on butterflies where both are toxic. Okay, and they've evolved over time to converge on a common form. And it's a type of marketing. If you can have twice as many signals, adverts, you're more likely to be able to sell the message to the birds to stay away. But how similar is similar? And there we're using machine learning to identify the traits that make them similar and not similar. And so we're trying to figure out what it is. Is it the 
overall shape? Is it a particular band? Is it the red? Is it the white? Is it the yellow? What matters to the bird? And what's also important is that if you can confuse the bird, then the bird will stay away. But if you confuse your mate and she mismates with the wrong species, then the genes for that species are gone because the babies are going to die. So using different channels of information, what we call RGB, red, green, blue, or possible UV may be a way out. And that's what we're looking at. So that's a new problem. Um, and we're using a lot of technology to help us get the answers to that. Thank you. Thank you for providing my insight on that. Now for our listeners who want to get, who are interested in a zebra conservation and want to get involved, what recommend, recommendations do you have? Like, are there any citizen science programs, like one you, I think, mentioned, and volunteer opportunities that you would suggest? Yes, there are. So we run what we call the Great Grebe's Rally every two years. Now, Grebe zebra span 25,000 kilometers into small isolated populations because their numbers have been reduced. And if we're going to make an estimate, there's two ways to make an estimate of the population. One is to fly lots of airplanes on tractor feeds, like when you cut your lawn and you move from area to area to area very quickly. So you don't, don't double count. But Grevy zebras shade under trees. Their stripes are too thin to cause these convection cells, so they're hard to see. So what we do is we, we do a citizen science bio blitz, which we call the Great Grevy's Rally. If you're interested, whether you're a citizen in Nairobi or live out on a commercial on a on a pastoral landscape, or if you're from a zoo keeper from the United States or the UK, or just a citizen who wants to be involved flying to Nairobi, you can join, and you'll be given a, a, a an area to drive and you're given a camera with a, a, a GPS, and you will then take pictures of the animals. And then we will know where you were when you took the picture. And we do it in two days. And that allows us to do what's traditionally called a mark recapture. You mark some animals on day one, and you count how many of the marked ones you find on day two. And then you look at how many on day two were also see on day one, so you can estimate the population size. But we don't have to mark them because they're naturally barcoded. So people drive around. We often have 350, 400 people driving around. They take up to 90,000 images and we process them. And then we make a census estimate. And that's why we have really good estimates that the numbers have gone from 2,300 to 2,800 between the last two Great Grevy's rallies and why I'm optimistic that they'll go to the over 3,000. Thank you. And as we come to the end of our episode, um, I would like to express our deepest gratitude for the insights that you've provided today and your dedication for understanding and conserving the zebras of our world is like truly inspiring. And to our listeners, we hope that this episode has not only deepened your appreciation for our incredible diversity on earth, but also like ignited a sense of responsibility within every single one of you, because all of us have the power to make an impact on our environment and the species that call it home. And so we're truly grateful that you joined us on this amazing journey into the world of humans of nature. So get ready for more episodes that will captivate you. Right. And everybody enjoy World Zebra Day. Take a moment to 
marvel at these wonderful striped creatures that are doing well, both species in, in Kenya uh, and the arid lands and the, and the wetter music lands, they're both now starting to thrive and they're coming back. Thanks to the local communities who really take knowledge and starting to use it in ways that they share their landscape so that we have sustainable use, not only for the animals, but also to improve the health and vigor of the human populations that share the landscape because they can earn salaries by working in science. And then the children can go to school and see what, you know, basically there's a future by using scientific knowledge that there are jobs out there. So one of our goals, we've created conservation clubs on top of our scout program to really get the kids and the youth involved in understanding how wildlife and people can share a landscape together.